thanks for pressing play. You're listening to Lock It On Marketing, the number one charting podcast for marketers, category designers, and entrepreneurs with a different mind. Today, we have a wonderful conversation, a very special episode with one of my favorite marketers. His name is Ryan Alford, and uh, he runs a digital marketing agency called Radical Marketing. And he has a great marketing podcast that I've been stoked to be uh, a guest on called The Radcast. It's a top 25 business and marketing podcast. And he's just one of those guys I like talking about marketing with. And so we're going to talk about how to have a legendary marketing career and why it is that many people in marketing don't view what they do as a craft that they're working on their whole lives and what happens when you do. So if you want to have a legendary career in marketing, you're going to love everything about this conversation with Ryan. Now, at Category Pirates, we have one of the top 10 business substacks. And if you want to learn to be a category designer, if you want to learn to be a pirate, if you want to learn how to reject the premise of what most people think and move from the incremental to the exponential, go to CategoryPirates.com and subscribe to the Category Pirates newsletter today. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. This is Lockheada Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. Well, Ryan, it sure is great to see you. How are you? I'm great, man. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for joining me. Now, I got a lot of things I want to talk to you about, um, but I'm curious off the top, is there anything special on your mind? Oh, you know, <laughs> world peace. Yeah. Fighting hunger. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm an open book, brother. We can go down any road you want. <laughs> Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift, whatever. <laughs> you know the funny thing I love uh, reading about the the conspiracy theorists are all over everything, and all this conspiracy theories around the NFL and Travis and Taylor Swift—it's it's so fucking stupid. Yeah, like you jeopardize your entire you know what a hundred billion dollar company uh, to script everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think so. There's a big difference between the NFL and. Uh, the WWE and uh, not that the NFL has been perfect and not that we shouldn't have some level of skepticism, but I mean, really, do we really, we really believe the NFL is fixing the fucking Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah. Fixing the Super Bowl and somehow talk Taylor Swift into uh, dating. I mean, they just happen to both be what 33, 35 year olds attractive and uh, hitting the same path as celebrities and they're dating and it's, Having great benefits, I did see three hundred forty million dollars in earned media value that that's gotten the Chiefs. <laughs> I was like, yeah, and I was actually, I wouldn't be surprised if it's much more than that for the NFL overall. Yeah, ten percent um, increase in female list uh, watchers this year alone. Well, and I think it's great. I think all the fashion and all that stuff, and it's really fun. And you yeah. know, here's the bullshit about that: the NFL invited Taylor to be the uh, Super Bowl halftime show this year. And she turned it down. She said she was too busy with her tour or whatever. The f she was getting her nails done. I have no idea, but she turned it down. And so it's like, well, 
if this was all part of a scam, all part of a big conspiracy theory, they would have for sure had her playing. Because could you imagine if he was in the Super Bowl and she was in the Super Bowl? Oh, God. Yeah. The uh, the leading up to. So, uh, yeah, they would have worked that out. She would have said yes. So uh, it would have definitely played. So, But that doesn't feed, you know, all the uh, bullshit rumors and gossip and everything else that people need to be able to talk about, right? People need to learn to consume media and think at the same time. <laughs> but Chris, you know that doesn't happen. Apparently, that's much harder for most of us yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm just in the I'm in the TikTok down the rabbit hole. I can't think and watch at the same time. Exactly, my thumb gets too tired. It's crazy. <laughs> so, uh, um, I'm curious, sort of, what is on your mind about, um let's start with maybe a marketing career. I get asked a lot, particularly by younger folks, uh, why they should go into marketing, how they should think about a marketing career. What does it feel like to be in marketing, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are, particularly for maybe a, a younger or newer person who's looking at marketing or just starting in marketing, uh, Ryan, about what it's like to be in marketing for a career. Yeah. I mean, I've had a blast personally. I mean, I think things have changed, but I mean, I've been in it for 20 years. I went to Clemson and went straight into the agency life, like literally right out of the womb of uh, college into agency life and had a hell of a career doing it so far. I, I, it's so funny. I feel, I mean, I'm I'm 46, but I feel younger than that. I guess team time flies, isn't it? How it goes, Chris? Like we all think we're <laughs> gonna live forever or whatever. But I, I don't. I don't ever whether whether am I in the what part of my career am I in the twilight? Am I in the middle? I don't know. I don't know what you're that definitely means. in the middle. Yeah, for sure. But but I will say it's an interesting time with AI and all the shit that's going on. There's no denying that it's having an impact. But here's what I think. You're you are and have taught me. I love nothing better than uh, Chris saying thinking about thinking. I, I still think if you enjoy thinking about thinking, marketing is a great place to be because there's never been a better time or better way to stand out is if you understand and you can think about things and you're creative. We've got this messy middle going on right now where everybody's kind of regurgitating and doing a lot of the same things, and I think if it excites you to be both in an innovation because I think we're, we're kind of in this place with innovation with AI and everything that's happening with marketing on, on one hand, but then it's kind of like back to the future with the opportunity that ideas and creativity can break through. And so I think it can be scary as hell if you want to like think that every job's going to be replaced, but I still think that there's this sweet spot for creative thinking and ideas and there's no better industry than marketing for that. That's what I think. I think um, it's been an amazing career for me. And the thing I find interesting with some uh, newer people, younger people getting into it, or even in some cases, people who've been in marketing for a long time, they interestingly enough, don't think of it as a craft and they think of it more like a job or more like a set of skills. And I wanted to kind of bounce this off you. The, the, the greatest marketers I know, they view it the same way that 
sort of a master um, surfboard shaper does. Incredible handmade surfboard shapers. Yes, they use CAD software. Yes, they use technology. But they over they commit to at a young age and over time build up their craft. And I'm always amazed that marketing people don't often look at it as a craft the way a surfboard shaper would. And so I'd be curious as to, you know, sort of how you think about marketing uh, from a career perspective. I, I love that you've gone here, Chris. And let me just say this, and this isn't bullshit. So if, you know, for anyone listening or people thinking about a career, I started out of school and I really mean this marketing in my career in advertising has never felt like a job. I, and, and they say, when you do what you love, you know, it never feels like a day of work in your life. Yada, yada, yada. You know how the saying goes. But I always felt like a little bit. My dad is is a master craftsman. We have creativity that runs through our family. He plays seven instruments, very creative. I, did, I can play the piano a little bit, bang around the guitar, but I'm not really that guy. That's my dad. But he's a master craftsman and works with his hands. And when I've been in the marketing career, I have always felt like you said, that I was crafting a skill and crafting something that I was instinctively good at, which is why I was lucky enough to, you know, went to Clemson, but I was a marketing major day when I wasn't that guy that changed majors seven times. And once I started in the ad agency business, I very much felt like it, which is why I became sort of a hybrid. I was, you know, went in as an account guy, came a strategy guy, then was doing creative and like, I little did a little bit of everything. And, but I always felt like, I was sharpening the knife, you know, of my ability. And even to this day, like I go into some, you know, meetings or discussions with clients and I feel like, you know, the one minute I got a sharp sword, the next minute sometimes it feels fairly dull, you know, when I'm trying to uh, put lipstick on a pig. But, 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 uh, but yeah, man, I think it's a hundred percent that, but it, but I think if you really love it and understand it, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I feel the same way. Uh, and certainly there are times in a career when you're working 80 hours a week and, you know, I used to travel two to 400,000 miles a year on a plane and uh, it can feel work-like. However, um, the excitement of being on a team that's really going for it and trying to do something legendary and trying to design new categories and grow companies and build products and enable sales teams and, of course, meet revenue numbers and all of those mm-hmm. things – um, you know, that's the, that's our football, right? That's that, that, those are all the things that you need to learn how to do to be legendary at marketing. And, you know, I really encourage young people to think about it as a skill, as a craft. And I also think being an executive is that I can remember when I made a decision to be an executive, because I started off as an entrepreneur. And for a lot of us, that's kind of one mental lens, one mental frame. And when I first got my real first executive job, I thought, you know what? I want to train myself to be a great executive and a great marketer, right? So if you will, two crafts at the same time on top of great entrepreneur. And of course, if you were to draw the Venn diagram, these things would be have massive overlap, but executive entrepreneur and marketer are three different skills that obviously have a huge overlap. And so I'm curious, Ryan, if I were a younger person, a newer person in my career, 
and I said to you, hey, I, I want to emulate some of the things that you've done in your career. How, how do I, you know, what are the things I need to learn? What are the things I need to build on to become a craftsperson around marketing and ultimately uh, becoming an executive leader in marketing? I think I wrote this, I wrote a post about this last night, you know, like the most important skills in like finding success in whatever you did. You got to be really highly curious and know and and know that you don't know it all. Uh, curiosity is a skill of the successful or a attribute is probably the better word. And you've got marketing has changed so much. Like there's so many mediums now. You know, when I was coming up, it, you know, the way that we got to spend a lot of time around, okay, what's the consumer insight? What's the insight of and perception and how do we move them from point A to point D or A to C or whatever that might be? And we got to really fuck with research. We got to do stuff. And because at the end of the day, whatever came out of that, the messaging really only had like four places to live, TV, radio, newspaper, <laughs> and outdoor boards. <laughs> and so that was the early part of my career. I've like, it's so funny. I hear you talk all the time, you know, digital natives, digital analogs, all that. And I came up and I consider myself like a perfect blend of the two because I spent half of my early career, you know, like on that analog side. And so we got to spend so much time on crafting the message. But now there's so many more mediums that I, that I, I don't, it, it's a little, I feel like I spend less time about the thinking and more about, holy shit, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all these places. All that to say, you need to be highly curious and you need to want to learn and understand the different aspects of the interplay of social media and video and all of these things. But I think it's that combination of curiosity and the people that really do well that we hire that might be young. They also have this like this voraciousness for learning. Like they want to continually learn because if you don't, if you like, if you hate change, you will hate marketing. And we have certain people that will come to work for us that they, they like, they want things to be steady. They don't want it to change. And man, it's just like a ton of bricks. They don't do well, but you got to be highly curious and, and embrace change. Amen. Hallelujah. And the interesting thing to me about that is on one hand, there are a set of what you could call kind of core principles, true norse that have been true about marketing forever. Uh, and yet to your point on, on platform decisions, on technology decisions, on uh, uses of certain approaches versus others, on what's the latest growth hack and is SEO working? Is SEO not working? And what about funnels and what about communities and what about this platform and that platform? And, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't actually know this. My producer, Jason, just told me, but I guess Apple did something with their uh, followership or something, something, and sort of fucked everybody's download numbers. And, and of course, uh, LinkedIn, not that long ago, changed their algorithm and cut everybody's numbers in half. And so there's also this sort of weird thing about the various different platforms that we don't own, where there's this term in California, I don't know if you ever heard this, where the, in the San Francisco Bay, They'll try to extend the amount of land in the bay and they fill the bay up and then they build shit on top of that filled in area. And uh, when when there's an earthquake, 
they describe what happens to that filled in area as liquefaction because it liquefies when it shakes and it sucks people's houses. So like you don't want to live on liquefaction. And, and the interesting thing as a marketer today is all of those platforms that we have zero control over, you know, many of us have built a lot of growth off those platforms and they make one change and all of a sudden we know what it's like to be living on liquefaction. Yeah, 100%. I've, I've seen that on our own stuff. And so you have things that you have to think about, you know, because you can make time and money investments in certain things and not know when the land's going to come underneath you. And I will say this, you know, there's only so much attention too. like marketing is about, you know, great marketing is about great garnering attention. And so no matter how many more platforms they add, how many more things, there's still only a finite amount of attention to be had. And so I sometimes find myself doing exactly what you said. I get I think about like funnels and I'm thinking about channels and I'm thinking about all this stuff. But you know what? When one big fucking idea would would make all that not matter because it breaks through. And so I think the marketer's great power still exists in whether it's a new category or a new way to launch that category or a new, a new campaign idea. Can you hear me now for Verizon? <laughs> that was my first campaign in 2001. You know, like, and who knew? You know, like, it's just fucking crazy. But that's the power of marketing. And sometimes we got to get out of our own way. Just remember, we're one big idea away from changing the world. Well, and the interesting thing about that. So on the attention front, there's an element of that that I think is um, uh, substantive, something we all need to pay attention to. And it's interesting how many idiots in marketing say that all it's about is attention. And that all your job is, is to get attention. And so that translates into all sorts of stupid advice. Like, ah, oh, you got to post 200 fucking things a day and you got to this and you got to that. And you're always, <laughs> to me, it's the, it's the digital equivalent of, you know, when you drive by a mattress store and you see that giant blow up balloony thing and it's just waving <laughs> in the air with the giant arms and all that stuff. That's called a wind feather. <laughs> that's what that's called, a wind feather? Yes. Okay, so here's my point of view. If that's what you're doing for your marketing, you're out of ideas, right? <laughs> you are not doing well. Game over. And, and I think a lot of the zeitgeist today in the marketing world, and particularly the digital marketing world, is you got to be a wind feather. You got to have, you got to, you just, and so puke out the maximum amount of shit possible. And there's very little discussion about what are you saying? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it is interesting how a one powerful idea executed well, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be focused on uh, gaining that attention, but if it's backed by a powerful, provocative point of view that captures the imagination of customers, particularly around a new and or different view of a problem, that captures their imagination, then all of a sudden you don't have to be screaming, look at me, look at me. Uh, you actually say, hey, over here, and then deliver something of substance, which then allows you to not be the stupid wind thing blowing look at the mattress store. Yeah, I would I would take it a step. Like when if I was like writing a brief, like I think everything now, 
what is your outcome? Oh, I want attention. That, so everything has like, <laughs> that's the failed flaw of everything. The outcome isn't we won't want attention. Look, the greatest campaigns ever weren't because I want attention. They were because I want to move a consumer, a buyer, a someone from position A to position B, their perception, their current reality, solving the problem, whatever that might be. And I come up with a killer idea, a killer campaign, which makes people nod their head, which in turn generates attention, but it wasn't the principal desire. So now, like, you know, everything's a, you know, stunt man's, you know, a stunt instead of an idea. Well, yeah. And I tell people all the time, hey, you want to get attention? Post nude videos of yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, lot, Do weird shit naked and put that up and you'll get all kinds of attention. There's lots of different yeah. ways to just get attention. The question is, what are you getting attention for? And one of the things I get into trouble for all the time, Ryan, is saying uh, marketing that does not produce revenue is called arts and crafts. And this sort of disconnection between, oh, our job is to be the campaign and produces a lot of attention because that's what Gary VD says we should do, as opposed to, no, no, marketing leaders that make the cash register sing get to stay and those that don't get to leave. And yeah. so why is it so hard for marketing people to understand your job ultimately? And it may be in the, it, it doesn't necessarily have to mean immediately, but ultimately you have to produce revenue in the now term in the medium term and the long term. And if what you're doing isn't somehow tied to that, um, then what are you doing? And yet that tends to be a very controversial thing. Every time I post it, it's a controversial thing because there's a lot of, it's just like in any other field, there's a lot of subpar marketers that don't want to be held to outcomes. And, you know, the outcomes is, and that's what you're describing right now. And that's one of the, I'll say this, I've been in the business 20 years. I have never lost a client that I was uh, generating revenue for. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. There's not a single one that has ever fired me or the agency I was working with or my current agency. Um, I'll tell you what, though. My ass has been let go by many a clients when we weren't. And even if it wasn't totally our fault, sometimes it, sometimes it was, I can own it. We're not all perfect, but that, but the people that get, that get triggered by that. And I am not one of them. I look at it and I just go like this, shake my head because what's real is real and real understands and recognizes real. And that's just <laughs> the damn plain facts. Yeah. And it's funny how, um, uh... There's some people in marketing who, and this is something I always test with young people. I'd be curious to your reaction. They sort of wanted to get into sales. They're, they're people, people, they're extroverted. They view themselves as creative, but for whatever reason, they don't want the sort of hardcore outcome result accountability. So they think, oh, I'll go into marketing because it's like sales, but nicer sales, <laughs> but mushier. And uh, and essentially, they're running away from uh, being held accountable. And uh, I always tell you, people, young people, if that's where your mind's at, um, marketing is for warriors who produce results. Yes, it is. And but the great thing about marketing is you actually you get to come up with. This is where you either embrace it or you hate it. You get to come up with the ideas that 
trigger sales and outcomes instead of having, if you're in sales, you're just always asking for the order. I like being part of the idea that triggers the order and getting the order, but not, I don't want to just go, buy me now, call to action. It all. I mean, it, you're a living, breathing call to action when you're in sales. I mean, it just is. And we can, you know, paint it with any brush you want. The best salespeople have relationships. Yeah, that's true. But the best marketing tees up the sale. Yes, absolutely. And in that regard, you know, there's so much broken mental scaffolding in marketing. Uh, one of them that I always find fun is um, go to market. We need to get better at go to market. See, <laughs> and one of the things, of course, we teach in category design, Ryan, is listen to the words. Go to market. Well, the reality is that's really fucking hard. That's a battle for attention with all the other donkeys screaming, look at me, look at me, look at me. In category design, of course, we talk about uh, framing a new problem to design a new category to attract the market. That is to say, get the market to come to you. So if I was a potential client, maybe I'm a CMO, I'm a CEO, and I'm coming to you and I say, hey, Ryan, you know, you guys have this awesome agency and you do all this cool shit. And I don't want to do the typical scream for attention. I don't want to do the typical go to market. I want to do something interesting and engaging that does capture attention. But after I capture that attention, it drives a massive amount of interest so that I begin to get the market to come to me. What would be the kinds of things you'd counsel me on? Well, are, are you talking about before or after it comes to you? I'm talking about before. <laughs> Once it yeah. starts coming there, there's an interesting problem or interesting set of problems when we talk about that. But let's talk about before. We want to teach the market to come to us. Yeah. Well, first, you have to uh, determine exactly. It all starts with the problem you're solving, right? And I think here's what I'll say this. We had this exact same thing I worked with in wireless industry, worked on almost every smartphone launch, you know, before there were smartphones, the first iPhone the droid, all those things. And instead of it, this was when the smartphone market was just was so nascent, you know, everybody those Blackberry and uh, everything else. And I'll say this, the category struggled with wanting to talk about all the speeds and feeds, all the, all the, all the attributes, but you know what? The market didn't understand why they needed it. I didn't know why I needed a smartphone. They just saw well, my husband carries around a BlackBerry. I'm, you know, I'm the stay-at-home mom. Why the hell do I need a smartphone? And they sure as hell weren't going to understand it that you're telling them all these attributes that the, well, you have email and you have all this stuff. And they're like, I don't want all that. But then the iPhone came around and uh, really portrayed and brought to life the consumer benefit and the reason and the problems that it could solve for someone that wasn't in business. And so the same thing happens for any company that wants. It doesn't start with what your product is or does. It starts with what is the problem? What is the opportunity? Or what is the something that consumers haven't even thought of, which is a lot of what Apple has done, is how we break that down and how we tell that to the consumer. I mean, so it starts with those types of discussions because no one fall, every company falls in love with their own product instead of falling in love with what is the solve? What is the problem that we're solving? 
And so this is a big sort of aha for people, particularly in category design, because they have to do a lot of unlearning. Because in marketing, we're taught to market our product, to build our brand. And the two things that are consistent with that is our. And the aha Mm -hmm. is nobody gives a shit about us. You know, when we wrote our book, Snow Leopard, we did the largest um, uh, primary research on non uh, nonfiction best-selling books. We licensed the data from Nielsen and we wanted to understand what was going on. So we licensed the data for all the top-selling uh, business nonfiction books for the last 20 years. And there's six or eight mega categories. And the number one mega category by a mile is personal growth. And the mm-hmm. second by a mile is personal finance. And biographies are at the bottom of the list. And so it makes it very clear, listen, nobody gives a shit about Abraham Lincoln. They don't. You know what they give a shit about? Themselves, right? (laughs) And so, and yet every marketer is like, oh, let's go build our brand. We need to build a brand. So if we're going to have that mindset, mindset shift, Ryan, to move from marketing ourselves, our product, our brand, to marketing the customer's problem, and let's say we're going to start a campaign to do that. And we're going to work with you to do that. What would be the kinds of things that you would be thinking of from an execution perspective, a creative perspective on the difference between marketing a brand or product and marketing a customer's problem? Yeah. Well, I mean, it starts with the customer and I'll give you even, uh, I know you're a sayings guy. I'll give you one better. You know what everyone's favorite radio station is, right? W I I F M. What's in it for me, baby? Exactly. <laughs> I, uh, that's a, a constant in the Ryanisms. Like, yeah, yeah, it's I, true. That's how I start up. I, actually, it's one of the ways I start. I break the, the the ice with brands that I'm working with. Like, they start talking about something, and I'm like, and I'm, I'll change it into them, you know, like versus they're like, I was like, y'all know, you know, we're talking a lot about everyone in this room, and everyone's favorite radio station is what's in it for me. And that it sort of reframes the whole discussion, but like creatively, I, look, it's one of the things like I spent a lot of time in my, in my middle career, whatever you want to call it in focus groups. And I don't pretend to think they're the most purest of places, but I will say if you have the right moderator and you get in a focus group and you understand and you get people talking about certain things, and you start to understand their perspective better. I think what happens is the boardroom doesn't really understand, like walking around to understand how you solve problems is you've got to talk to and understand your customers or who they are. And I think we've gotten a lot of that. And your own customers a lot of times can tell you those things because and I know you're a big, you know, super customers, super fans, all those things, a big believer in that. But the education that you can learn from talking to them uh, can feed a lot of the insights that then drive creative campaigns. And a lot of the discussions that I get into with brands now is it becomes very tactical. Like I told you, we get in the what's our how it's not a it becomes how what are we going to do on TikTok? What are we going to do on X now that X is crazy? You know, like all these things. And it's like, well, that matters. But that doesn't matter if we aren't coming up with an idea and a solution in a way with which to talk about how and where your product fits 
and or breaks down a new category or comes into fruition. And so the dialogue has to start there. And I think that's where we reframe it when we're working with a brand is bringing us back to that center and then trying to get education and, and channels with which will feed the insights that lead us to ultimately an idea. And, and I love that. And I think it's something that is missing for a lot of people. It, it reminds me of a story. My brother from another mother, fellow category pirate, Eddie Yoon, um, the king of super consumers. And so when you understand a super consumers, that is to say there's eight to 10% of any market category, not just your customers, but consumers, customers in the whole market that drive the market, that drive where things are going to go, that are uh, most prone to talking because word of mouth was, is, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. Um, and of course, they're the source of the vast majority of profits in the category. So I think when you understand that, if you get back to your focus group, if you're going to do research, focus groups, data research, surveys, whatever it is, focusing on the super may sound obvious, but it's not obvious to many. And then here's a fun story for you. You'll love this. So um, Eddie was working with the folks that make ballpark Franks, the hot dogs. Yeah. And they were trying to produce a breakthrough in growth. And of course they did what most people did, which is they think about marketing their product and their brand and baseball and the whole thing. So uh, Eddie started to study the data around the supers and he noticed how many more hot dogs that supers seemed to be buying. And he wanted to figure out why. So he did some research, some focus groups, and here's what he figured out. The greatest super consumers of ballpark franks and hot dogs were moms and teenage boys. And the reason mom loved them is because nobody eats more than a 16-year-old boy. And when they're hungry, they want to eat fucking now. And you could take a ballpark frank, put it in the microwave, and ta-da, <laughs> some mustard and some ketchup and a bun, and you can feed a quote-unquote starving 16-year-old boy very quickly. And so when they started to center their marketing around not their product, not the quality of the beef or the this or the that, around, hey, you want to feed a 14-year-old boy in 30 seconds or less? Boom. And, and that's the kind of radical insight, I think, you can only get by understanding what Eddie calls the weird data around the super consumers. Yep. And I love that. And I, I, my wife and I, we have four boys that are in that camp. We would have probably fallen in there. We eat more hot dogs up than probably the average. Of our, our, uh, we're probably 400x the average <laughs> just by the nature of having four boys, five if you count me, five big boys. How old are, the, <laughs> how old are your sons? 14, 12, 11, and 8. Oh, wow. So, You're going to be eating a lot of ballpark breaks. <laughs> yes. Uh, so lots of ballpark. And it would have drilled, if that insight would have probably drilled home for us. But I will say this, um, you know, so how do you get to that down in a modern age? I'm a big people. I look at like weird SEO, like weird like search stats as search data come starts rising up. And social listening can be really great or really terrible. But if you get the right data, it can point to certain things. Because look, we do live in a world of, you know, word of mouth is alive and well like it always has been. And the beauty is we now have these social media channels, which I, I would call it amplification. 
of word of mouth is what happens and what, you know, we call it spokesperson influence wherever you want. But a lot of times you can find or discover, you know, some of these trends that might be happening underneath. And that can also illuminate a lot of strategies as well. There are all sorts of little nooks and crannies you can discover, right? If you understand <laughs> SEO slash social listening. Yep, exactly. The other strategy we love there is um, instead of a head-on uh, marketing, we do what's called damn the demand in category design, which is not attack another company, product, or brand, but attack their category. You know, a simple example would be uh, Peloton versus spinning, right? And so somebody Googles spinning and you serve up a ad that says, well, what you think you want is spinning, but what you really need is home biking, right? <laughs> and so you do a from to by damning the demand. You catch the demand here, you say something provocative, engaging, that's not attacking the competitor, but attack, attacking the category of the competitor, the idea of what they do versus, you know, another one would be you Google uh, uh, fake eyelashes. You know, eyelashes have never been more popular, best I can tell. And you can either go to a salon and have them done or you can have them at home, right? So if you Google eyelash salon, you get an ad that says, well, you thought you wanted a salon, but what if you could do it more easily and cheaply? at home. And so this whole idea of damming the demand, just like a, a dam stops a water flow. And so I'm curious how you think about kind of interrupting somebody when they're going one direction and damming the demand to get them to another. Yeah. I think <laughs> what's interesting is there's, there's two ways at it. There's one where your product or service is such a clear, you know, step up from something that's already super popular which is a little bit of what you just described. Like, okay, everybody wants lashes. Well, you don't have to go to the salon to do it. You make it easier, whatever it might be, the convenience factor. I mean, convenience is a really interesting word, like the convenience of popular things. So when you can take a trend or something that's already popular and layer sprinkle the convenience dust on top of it, you get real fucking powerful, no matter what it is. Because... We are creatures that like and want our conveniences, our creature comforts, first world problems, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> first world desires. And so I always look at that like sometimes and there's two things, convenience factor and friction removal. People hate friction. And if you can remove friction, which is the path from someone going to what they want to get to, getting what they want having what they want, going where they want, and or pay the old PETA tax, pain in the ass, if you can reduce that, that is the greatest unlock for any category is, and, and I think that's where people get really fucking in their britches, like, Chris, like, I'll talk about some of your theories and things like that, and people get overwhelmed with it, and I'm like, it is not that complicated, it takes a little bit of thinking, but we just gotta, sometimes it's as simple as friction removal. It's funny that you say that because uh, we were watching the football the other day and uh, um, my wife's an amazing cook. And so she's getting ready to make us ribs and all this stuff. All the boys and girls are over and, you know, we turn it into a party, particularly for the playoffs. And um, come to find out, we ran out of potato chips. <laughs> 
Well, unbeknownst to me, uh, Carrie just gets on Instacart and she orders up, I don't know, 10 bags of potato chips, different flavors, this and that. And, you know, she gets some extra Cokes and whatever other sort of nigglies. And I, I shit you not, it's there in, I don't know, I don't know if it was quite half an hour, but it was less than an hour. And, of course, I didn't even know this was happening. We're all watching the game, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the doorbell <laughs> rings, and I go to the front door, and there's all 10 bags of fucking potato chips. Like, wow, the potato chip fairy just showed up. Yeah, and think of how convenient that was and how, you know, if you had thought of it, or whatever, would you pay the 30% tax? Hell yeah, you'd pay it because you got company over, you want those damn potato chips. Yeah, there's it's not the way time. I'm normally going to buy groceries, but every once in a while, and it's the same thing with... Um, you know, DoorDash or Uber Eats or all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, and you look at your watch and it's 6.30 and you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm hungry, but I'm tired. I don't want to go out. And you're like, you could press a couple buttons on your phone and have like food from one of the your favorite restaurants in town show up here in 45 minutes or so. Man, it's compelling. And, and in that moment, if it's a 20% or 30, whatever the uplift is, you sort of thought, I say, ah, oh, fuck it. It's not what I'm going to do every night, but tonight we're doing it. Exactly. I mean, and then, I mean, you know, it's always the layup answer or layup thing, but like, I mean, Amazon's made it so fucking easy to buy one click anything. And so you've got the Amazon factor with anything that you buy. And so like them, love them or hate them, it's changed. I don't know how you can uh, hate them. <laughs> you know, and one of the other interesting things about Amazon, uh, I've become friendly with John Rossman over the years and he was the guy that, have you had him on your podcast, Rossman? No, no. Oh, geez, I, I need to, to introduce you. He's yeah. got a new book coming out. He's about as smart as they get. And he's the guy that um, was hired by Bezos and the, and the crew to create the marketplace business. Oh, wow. Right, to add all the that. additional stores back in the beginning. Anyway, Rossman shared with me many things, but this one sticks in my mind as to your comment, Ryan, which is um, Bezos in the beginning was obsessed with making returns easy. Hmm. And he said there were people internally who were like, what? And if you think about a lot of stores, whether it's analog or digital, they make it almost impossible to fucking return stuff. And Jeff's point of view, according to John, was that friction that you talked about, we have to make it as easy to return shit as it is to buy shit, maybe even easier. Because then not only do you have the friction on the front end, you also know as a consumer, if there's hassle or you buy a pair of pants and they don't fit or whatever it is, you can return that shit in a nanosecond. And so but you'll buy more. Exactly. Because you've removed that perception that it'll be hard if I need to return it. That's right. And so thinking about the whole customer slash revenue life cycle and in particular customer service, you know, there's a lot of companies today that just fucking don't do it. They're just completely suck at it or they've turned it into AI or they've turned it into a horrible, you're 437th in line and all that stuff. And of course, um, the way category leaders do uh, service and support is much more in the Bezos kind of domain where you just call and we fix that shit. Yeah, exactly. And damn, talking about a lost art, customer service, man. I mean, I'm uh, like, if I write a book, I've got two uh, titles in, in mind and it's like, uh, lifetime loss instead of lifetime value like of like not doing the right customer service and retention like Absolutely. we got we've gotten so obsessed 
with the next new sale. Don't get me wrong. I know this is survives on new sales and all that, but customer service and customer relationship management is a fucking lost art. And if I hear one more message that says in these trying times, I'm going to punch somebody in the face. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> I got your trying times. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's why uh, we we believe we need to tilt the conversation a lot more to lifetime value. Yeah. Right. And totally. people give it lip service, but then they don't invest in it. Yeah, 100%. And uh, it's brilliant. Like Bezos, I mean, you know, his what yachts bigger than the state of South Carolina, but um, like <laughs> for this reason, <laughs> but people, but that's what's so brilliant about it. Like people think we'll make it hard to return things and we'll, it'll be better for the bottom line. Like, <laughs> well, it's just a bad business model. It says when a bad thing happens to the customer, a good thing happens to us. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the, it's the baggage fees in the airline industry. It's the late fees back in the day of, of video rental stores, right? You, if your business model is predicated on a, when a bad thing happens for our customer, a good thing happens for us, you have a fucked up business model. Yeah. And so many businesses are still so adversarial against their own customers, like what you just described. Like, even if they don't think they're doing it, they are. It's like, it's us versus them. How do we get them? How do we, how do we get them? You know, uh, I like to say the mouse trap saves the cheese, but kills the mouse. Yeah, don't don't kill the mouse. <laughs> you need them. <laughs> now, you've also been podcasting for many years now. Um, how long has it been? Remind me, Ryan. I'm I'm six years in. Yeah, and uh, how many how many episodes do you know? Like four twenty. Yeah, yeah. And so you've talked to a lot of the smartest people in marketing. You know, what are the key things that you'd share with me about some of your favorite guests or some of your favorite learnings? Yeah, I mean, I'll say as a whole, the medium is amazing for relationship building, uh, top of the funnel, uh, so many other things with, we talk about all the, all these unauthentic ways with which to create and, you know, build, you know, brand awareness and things like that. And so it's, it's been amazing for me, but also just relationship building. And you, you know, I have, I think I have three guests that have been on twice, Chris, and, uh, you're, you're one of them. So, I, I know you weren't teeing it up, but I'm going to say it. You have been and are remain the only repeat guest, one of the only repeat guests, because I, I think you are one of the brilliant minds in marketing. And I just it's like this combination. Look, there's there's smart people, you know, but it's smart people plus delivery. Like you're like right down there, you know, like you're not scared to like just punch like not figuratively. I say that I'm not a violent person, but like, you know, punch people in the throat with the knowledge, you know, like you aren't. And I love that, that you're delivered. So you are Ben. But then, I mean, there, there's a lot of, of, of people I'm blessed. We have a lot of quasi-celebrities, athletes, things like that. But ironically, uh, Bruce Buffer, who's actually right over my shoulder, and Mr. Lockhead's on my other shoulder, um, in, in my uh, wall of favorites and, and just fame and all that sort of thing. But Bruce Buffer owns like four companies. He's the voice of the Octagon, UFC. You talk about like surprisingly good marketer. Holy shit. He was amazing. <laughs> I love Bruce Buffer. I really do. I, his brother, of course, as well as a fight fan. And um, I was lucky enough. It's been a long time, um, but I was lucky enough to have him on uh, on as well. And um, he's really fun and he's really smart and he's funny. And man, does he have great stories. Oh, God. He was talking. He talked about a story about him. I mean, it's his brother, Michael, and them not even necessarily knowing each other. 
that whole story of them getting together. And right. Michael Buffer, who's you know the voice of boxing, ready to rumble. And then, <laughs> you know? uh, and then he's got a lot of stories about a lot of late nights and a lot of tables in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> We've been down a couple of those holes. Been a lot, uh, of right? Not as far as I wanted to, but uh, yeah, man, he's got uh, an energy drink. It's time energy drink. He's got a. Uh, Punch some kind of puncher's bourbon. Like he's got all kinds of he's stuff. He's doing it all. Yeah, he's doing it all. But he, but, and I don't know how those products are or aren't going to do. I, I can't speak to his success with those things. But I will say, talking to him, it was less like, oh my god, Bruce Buffer's got all these products. No, the fuck guy understands marketing and business and insights and all. That. I mean, I was just that was where I was blown away. Just how smart he was. Yep. Yep. So, uh, but I will say podcasting is, is an amazing thing. It allows, it's look, I mean, you and I wouldn't know each other and consider your friend and, and one of yeah. the leading voices in marketing. And it's, uh, it's, it's the long form medium and, and the relationships and the, I don't know, I think the ability to talk and have active listening is, I think, undervalued. Amen. Hallelujah. And I find it so fascinating and Shakespeareanly, if that's a word, ironic <laughs> that the medium that has helped give everybody ADHD, the smartphone, <laughs> is the medium that is bringing back long form, unedited, real dialogue. Because podcasts are literally the only media that I'm aware of where long form, unedited, real conversation occur. You know, when, when I watch TV, one of the craziest things I hear all the time, particularly on kind of news shows, talk shows, things like that is, well, Jim, we're going to have to leave it there. <laughs> leave it there on a podcast. We don't have to leave it anywhere. We can go as deep as we want. <laughs> exactly. And I think people are craving that. I think that's why the medium has improved and gotten and, and more popular. And so coming up to new audiences and you know, I'm pumped. We're launching the whole network. The Radcast is now the Radcast Network. We've got six shows, and and we're we want to get to a hundred this year. We think we will. Um, wow! And so wow, yeah. yeah. So let me ask you about that. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of public failures. Uh, Spotify has lost, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars. They've cut ties with uh, the Obamas. Uh, what's her face, Markle? Uh, you know, these huge celebrities that had shows that they cut. And so why is it at a time when particularly uh, Spotify and some others appear to be struggling in podcasting, pulling back from podcasting? Are you planning to go from how many shows to 100? Uh, we're at six right now. And but you want to go wanna... to 100? That's the BHAG. Yeah. Okay. You know, so, Chris, so tell me about why that's the case. Well, look, I will say this. I do believe in the audio format, but I do believe that audio and video, video podcasting uh, as well with YouTube and others, there's an intersection. There's both different. There's the same audiences and different audiences for both audio and video. And the Radcast Next work wants to be at the intersection of those two things and helping brands like ours, like we did with our own show. I mean, you know, no, we we did six years. And now, the, you know, routinely the number one in marketing and business. And look, we've learned all these things. We've also learned how to grow and and be profitable from it. And so what I'll say is uh, there's the intersection of audio and video that is going to be the future of the medium. I think both still have a place. 
And I don't think that has been fully brought to life. And so we're going to be helping charge and learn. And it's not because, I'll say this, Chris, we don't have everything solved, but we do understand where these worlds are coming together. And I mean, I'll even joke like Pat McAfee, you know, being a prime example, the guy just got, he made 85 million from ESPN, just licensing his content, you know? So he was a podcast, then a show that he put a set together and he's still an audio podcast, a video show on YouTube that makes hundreds of thousands of dollars from that and then licensing that content. And so we think there's a real future on the audio and the video side that hasn't come to, uh, to bear yet. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> and just to double down, uh, fairly recently, you know how LinkedIn will tell you stuff. And so I got this alert from LinkedIn that said I'd been podcasting for seven years. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, you know, cause it was in January. <clears throat> yeah. And I had this aha seven years ago when I started, people said to me, Oh, it's too late. There's too many podcasts. You should have started five years ago. Well, the best time to start a podcast was 15 years ago. Sure. The next best time to start a podcast is fucking now. And there are 4 million podcasts in the world, and we're in the top 0.5%. And I just, I had this aha, Ryan, which is, imagine if I had listened to the donkeys. (laughs) <laughs> right? Yeah. And in your case, we got big traditional media companies failing and you're radically expanding. Ha ha. The radical dude is expanding in podcasts. And so uh, it, it also, it, it sort of strikes me like this. We were talking about Taylor Swift. And of course, one of the things she's well known for is she writes her own music, which makes her even cooler. Well, imagine the following. Taylor Swift is at the beginning of her career and she wants to be a singer songwriter. And somebody says to her, well, you know, Taylor, Paul McCartney's the greatest singer-songwriter of all time. Nobody can ever catch him. He sold more records and songs than anybody else. And so uh, songwriting's done. You shouldn't do any songwriting. <laughs> right? It's yeah. like anybody who tells you a creative endeavor is saturated is out of their fucking mind. Yeah, 100%. Look, my wife told me I was crazy. Uh, let me just tell you, that was six years ago. She doesn't think I'm crazy anymore, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> we might be crazy, but look for different reasons. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, I'll say this. Eight out of 10 revenue stream. Eight out of $10 added to any radio revenue stream I have. Now, I have multiple comes from my podcast, 80%. So, so hold on. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Of the various different revenue lines you guys have, you think yes. 80% comes from podcasting? 100%. Either a product that I sell for companies that I own, uh, my, call it what you want, my personal, I know you hate the word personal brand. I don't love it either, but I don't have another name, but people know who I am because of my show. So Let's my, call uh, that a reputation, Ryan. <laughs> rep, there you go. All right. Whatever you want to call it. Reputation. Uh, they We asked them. And my clients are radical. You know, we ask people on the website, how did you learn about us? Well, we we heard Ryan on the show. We heard the Radcast. We know I mean like eight out of 10. And then we asked the same things like other products that I sell, other speaking and all those things. It, I would say eight out of $10, 80% of my revenue streams dict- are, are originated from the awareness generated from my podcast. Yeah, but you shouldn't have started that podcast because there are too many podcasts. 
<laughs> and my wife didn't want me to because <laughs> she thought I was wasting my time. <laughs> you gotta stand, you gotta sit in front of a computer and talk to your dumbass self. <laughs> exactly. And look, the first six months, you know, fifty people listened, and forty eight were my mom. Yeah, but you know what? I stayed with it. I got better. The show got better. I started having the Chris Lockheads of the world on the show. Like you know, it all came together. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is funny like that, and. uh um, I don't look at the data very often, um, and I, I looked at it the other day, and there's like some all kinds of wild stuff in there about like, you know, we're the number 47 marketing podcast in Spain, or like all this crazy <laughs> shit, and you're like, what the fuck's, you know, you've been downloaded in 191 countries. I'm like, I didn't know there were 191 countries, right? Yeah, um, and I was walking to the airport, because I do, we do audio and video. And, uh, you know, it hit me for me, like random dude, I'm there with my son and we were coming back from Mexico or something. And I don't, I don't know if we're in the Miami airport, Atlanta, I can't remember. And they're like, Radcast Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> and my son goes, damn dad, I guess you are a celebrity. I'm like, no, I'm not a celebrity, but you know, there are, you know, we do get a million downloads a month. So eventually somebody's going to know me. Somebody's going to figure <laughs> something out. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I personally find that stuff spooky. I've had some weird encounters with people showing up at the house and Ugh. that kind of stuff. And, and we don't do video for that reason. Um, although, <clears throat> you know, we probably could double our numbers if we did. But the other strange one, I don't know if this happens to you, is I'll be in line somewhere at a coffee shop or at an airport or uh, I was going to get, I get allergy shots once a month. Um, and it's happened to me in all those places uh, where um, somebody will say, excuse me, but do you have a podcast? And I'll say, uh, yeah. And they'll say, you're not Christopher Lockett, are you? And they recognize my fucking voice. Well, you have a distinct voice. Let's go. That doesn't shock me at all. Yeah, well, it shocks me if you're me. <laughs> I know. That you but, could hear uh, me chit-chatting with the barista and, and figure out who I was. I uh, could be like nine halls over and hear your voice and know that'd be <laughs> Chris, where are you? <laughs> it's funny. I, I had a, a a friend of mine who has kids who are oh, I don't know, maybe eight and 11 or nine and 12 or, you know, sort of in, in that zone. And typically the later in the day, uh, the more gravelly my voice sounds. So if you talk to me at six o'clock at night, it'll sound, you know, 25% more gravelly than it does. <laughs> and I, I often talk to her and she'll put me on speakerphone with the kids in the car or whatever. And uh, she said to me the other day, you know, because I was talking to her and my voice was particularly gravelly. <laughs> and um, And she said, you know, uh, every time my kids hear, hear you on speakerphone, they think you sound like Batman. <laughs> like, hey, you, know, you, have, you do kind of sound a little bit like that. You know, you can play them. Yeah, it'd be another career career for you, the voiceover of well, uh, Batman. <laughs> and I, I said to her one of my favorite lines about that. My my wife got me a, a sign from my studio that says this that I think is quite funny. It says, I'm not saying I'm Batman. I'm just saying no one's seen me and Batman in the same room together. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm Batman. My first name is Bruce. <laughs> exactly. Well, and in my case, my father's name is Bruce. So there you go. Oh, there I do think, it. isn't Bruce one of the cool, I mean, I'm biased because of my dad, but. It's a good name. Bruce is a man name. Bruce. Very manly. Bruce. Yeah. Bruce. Yes. Yes. For sure. All right, Ryan, anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? I think that's good, my friend. It's yeah. been fun. Great to see you. Stoked you're doing well. You look awesome. 
Go Likewise. go do a million more podcasts and 10 million more downloads. Yes. And uh, I look forward to having you back in the future. Likewise, brother. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Well, there he is, my buddy Ryan Alford. Uh, you can find him at ryanalford.com and check out his podcast, The Radcast. It's a top 25 business and marketing podcast everywhere uh, that you get legendary oddcasts. All right. We would like to thank, we would like to thank you for your time and attention. It means the world to uh, all of us around here. Uh, we deeply, deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with us. Uh, now, readers like you have made Category Pirates Substack mini book newsletter one of the top business newsletters in the world. So go to CategoryPirates.com and learn the frameworks for creating and dominating your market category, how to produce exponentially different results, and a ton more. CategoryPirates.com. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out A-T-R-E.net and learn how you can get a rapid refresh done on your on your website. <laughs> My friends at Clary are the world's leading revenue platform. Most CEOs have a hard time answering the most important question in business, which is, are you going to beat, meet, or miss on revenue? Clary is the platform for optimizing your revenue across your entire enterprise. So go to Clary.com, C-L-A-R-I.com today. And before you act on any of today's information, please contact your doctor, lawyer, mystic, therapist, yoga instructor, Pilates instructor. Uh, I've been recently, I've been seeing a chiropractor lately who's been really great. So you might want to check with your chiropractor uh, and, of course, your category designer before acting on anything that you heard on today's oddcast. You also must know that the creators of this oddcast were absolutely consuming libations. Everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my top favorites. And if you're a little grumpy like I am and you're a little geeky, check out Grumpy Old Geeks. Uh, technical Execution and Lockhead.com are built by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by GM Simon and the Bobus Brothers. RJ and EX do our web de development. And Cedric Barros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. And the thought I will leave you with today comes from uh, the greatest surfer of all time, Kelly Slater, who said, do something radical. <laughs>